Welcome everyone to Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host Chris Kay, and we're back with another spectacular episode. This week we're spanning the globe and stopping in Finland, where Children of Bottom was formed as we go head-to-head with Hatebreeder versus Follow the Reaper, two of Bottom's earlier albums that helped set the standard of melodic death metal. Kenneth and I are going to go over the tracks on both albums, offer our opinions on each one, and then at the end we'll determine which one we think is the better album. We've also got Rusty Metal on Freshly Forged coming up in a bit, along with some recent headlines we think you'll need to hear about. But before that, let me remind you, if you enjoy the show, click the subscribe button on your favorite platform and get the show delivered to your favorite device every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're also now on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and ring that YouTube bell and be alerted each week when we drop a new episode. Kenneth, why don't we go over some headlines? Okay, headlines. So, you know, I'm reading through Blabbermouth because that's what I do on a regular basis. And, you know, I I try to read some of the other ones, but pretty much they all encapsulate the same thing and, and kind of Blabbermouth is the best at, you know, condensing it all into one platform and reading some of these headlines recently it's just it, they're head scratchers to me man and and in other cases it's kind of like duh so we've got a few headlines that we're going to talk about here um i'm going to start it off with this one gene simmons doesn't know what happened to david lee roth you know what i think van halen fans that saw the last show or the last tour are asking the same question you know and what Gene Simmons and the rest of the band thought bringing David Lee Roth in to be the the opening act to their end of the the road tour is is beyond me. What what do you what do you have to say about David Lee Roth and his current status as a frontman? Um, I mean, I think he's really lost his singing ability. Uh, to be honest, and it's it's hard to say because the guy is still very excited. He's still very much a front man but i did listen to like i remember when the what was it um the tokyo uh i can't remember the name of the release it was a live it was the last um album they released it was a live album mm-hmm. it was in tokyo and um it sounded really bad like it just did it it wasn't it was not fun to listen to um, the, the previous live albums with Sammy, um, I always really enjoyed. And this one was just a hard listen. Yeah. You're talking um, about Tokyo Dome live in concert. Yes. That's, that's the one. Oh yeah. That was terribly. I mean, it, it to me, it sounded like a, a, a soundboard recording and the mix just still wasn't done right. Yeah. It, but it wasn't even just the mix. That was a problem. It was, it was David Lee Roth's voice. I mean, he like, there's a difference between going live and kind of accepting and saying, you know, this, this band's not quite what they used to be, but it's cool to see them. But to even do a release, I think was a mistake is a misfire. And, um, yeah, he's still got the front man personality. He still enjoys what he does. But for me, I don't, I wouldn't want to pay to see like it, the, the, 
the difference is some of these guys that are still out there, you go pay 30 bucks or something like that. And you go see them and it's cool because you know what you're getting into. You know, you, you know that they're not at the top of their game anymore, but 30 bucks is kind of reasonable. Van Halen was charging exorbitant amounts and yeah, that makes sense to go see Eddie, but it's a whole package. You know, it's not, it's not one musician out there that you're going to see. Like you're listening to David singing as well. So I, for me, it was, it was not something I was interested in. No, not at all. And uh, so, so for Gene Simmons to sit there and talk about it, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, they basically asked him, you know, what happened to David Lee Roth and how come he's not uh, opening up? And when they say what happened, they meant more like, you know, why is he not the opening act on, on this leg of the tour? Mm-hmm. And he basically was being honest and that tends to be Gene Simmons way. You know, he basically said, I, you know, reading it word for word on this quote, you know, it bears noting that during Dave's heyday, nobody did what he did. He was the ultimate front man, not Robert Plant, not Rod Stewart, nobody. He took being a front man way beyond anything. And then I don't know what happened to him, something. And you get modern day Dave, I prefer, to, <laughs> I prefer to remember Elvis Presley in his prime, sneering lips back in Memphis, you know, doing all that. I don't want to think of bloated naked Elvis on the bathroom floor. <laughs> so, so on the other side of the coin, though, like he, he's honest about everyone else but himself, too. Yes. I, because, I, because look at, look at the performance that, that, uh, that uh, Paul, Paul Stanley's St- been putting on. Right. I mean, he's had to use backing tracks, and it's been very obvious. And when he's not using the backing tracks, his voice is shot. So it's funny to point fingers, but you know what? Three point fingers point back at you. So, you know, Gene Simmons, he, what an ego, man. Yeah, no, we'll we'll never <laughs> we'll never get past that ego. All right. So the next headline that came to my attention was this one: Tim Ripper Owens doesn't see why Judas Priest wouldn't perform songs from his era on 50th anniversary tour. Now, you and I, when we did our most recent Iron Maiden episode, we briefly skimmed over the surface as to why Bruce Dickinson is okay with doing uh, Blaze era songs. And we, I actually wanted to mention it back then, but I'm kind of glad we held on to, to it to this point, and we didn't do any holding on on purpose. But we mentioned that Br- the reason why Bruce is okay with singing those songs is because, you know, the entire band writes the songs. The entire band writes the music and the lyrics, and, and you know, not all together, but, you know, there's like Adrian Smith will write with Bruce. Bruce will write with Steve. Steve will write with Adrian. Steve might write with with Dave, Steve is going to write by himself, right? So mm. they all kind of contribute, you know, they, you know, Steve writes with, with Yannick. So there's, there's different contributions from everybody in the band and, and Steve is his own lyricist as well. And they, they, you know, they'll come together as a band and say, here, this is the song I've got. Here are the lyrics and Bruce sings it. So that, that's the reason why Bruce is okay with singing Blaze stuff because it's the same type of thing he's done the entire time he's been in Iron Maiden. Someone hands him lyrics, he sings it, I am singing for Iron Maiden. The difference with Judas Priest, however, is that Rob writes all their lyrics. You know, it's not like Glenn comes in with a riff and, and here's, here's a, sh- a sheet of lyrics, this is what you're going to sing. That's never been the case in Judas Priest. And yeah. And while Rob has gone on record as saying he doesn't have a problem, 
singing those songs. The flip side is he's never heard those songs. He says he's never listened to those two albums. So there's there, there's that kind of contradiction in terms. I have no problem singing these songs, but I've never listened to them. He's never yeah. going to do those songs. I mean, if you've, if you've read his book, you understand how hurt he was when everything happened, uh, when they split ways, and he's never made any effort to listen to those albums because he felt like he should have been in the band during that time, and I get that. Um, that being said, these songs were written by Glenn Tipton, for the most part. The lyrics were written by Glenn Tipton, who's still uh, you know, a, a part of this band, and they're, they're written essentially for Rob. You know, they're, they're not like they, they wanted Tim cause Tim has a lot of dimensions to his voice and he can do a lot of things. They're written for Tim to sing like Rob, you know, and, and there are some really good tracks that I think Rob would sound amazing singing. And Tim says the same thing. Like he would love to hear Rob sing Burn in Hell, and so would I. I love that song. I We've talked about it before. I mean, there's so much that 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 he could do. And especially seeing, like, they're, they're bringing out, like, Rockarola on this tour and stuff like that. Like, I would love to hear him sing just maybe one or two of these classic songs. It would I, be amazing. I'd like to hear him sing Bloodsuckers. <laughs> Bloodsuckers would be fantastic. Yeah, so I, I get... You know, Ripper wanting his songs to be performed because there's always a cha-ching that goes along with that. But I don't think it's just that. I think it's you know, like he's proud of what he did with Judas Priest. Oh, of course. And and for to see his idol, who like honestly, he was in a cover band for a reason. It wasn't to, it he wasn't in a cover band so that he could become a member of Judas Priest. He was in a cover band because he loved Judas Priest and he still does. And he has gone on record many times saying that the rightful person to be the singer of Judas Priest is Rob Halford. But how would it feel to have a song that you performed be sung by your idol, be sung by Rob Halford? That would be amazing. Oh, yeah. And I think that's really where he's coming from, where it's just like there is that money aspect to it, but at the same time it would be like, oh, my God, this is my hero singing my song. Yeah, and... It, that would be an amazing feeling. And I, I think that's a little bit of what Tim is kind of hurt by. But the bottom line is that the band's not going to do it. I just don't see it happening. Um, I, I, I looked at the the, the Bloodstock uh, set list from the other day. They threw in a few songs from Firepower. Um, they, they spread it out. They added Rock and Roller like you just mentioned. Um, hell, they the second song or second or third song on the concert was Screaming, uh, not Screaming Fringe, it was You Got Another Thing Coming, which I was like, wow, they really brought that in early. But they did a lot of British Steel stuff. Like the encore was like a British Steel encore. <laughs> yeah, the, the encore has been a little bit slower in, in general terms. Like they're not the, the super fast tracks, um, mostly because they've been bringing in uh, Glenn Tipton to play, right? And he's not capable physically of of you know keeping up the same way he used to with his Parkinson's disease, right? So yeah, basically that's <clears throat> Tim. It's nice, but it's not going to happen. All right, so we move on um, now. Now we've got a, a kind of like a we got two more headlines to deal with, but this one here is is kind of like a double by itself, um, and it's basically dime bag related. Um, so, the estate of Dimebag is has 
pulled up, has basically filed a lawsuit against Dean Guitars, uh, and it has to do with the the Dean from Hell guitar that Dimebag had, and and all the stuff that goes along with it between Dean Guitars and the Dimebag estate. Associated with that is that the guy who actually designed the original Dean from Hell guitar, uh, his name is Buddy Blaze Webster. He has passed away recently, and so th- that's what the connection is with these two different um, articles. So Rita Haney, who is Dimebag's longtime girlfriend, and she's the trustee of, his st- of the estate, announced that she was cutting ties with Dean Guitars after 17 years. Um, she also revealed that they filed a lawsuit against Dean, alleging fraud, breach of written contract, uh, excuse me, breach of written agreement, and false endorsement. So I, I personally think that that lawsuit's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Dean has probably got a really, really good um, uh, defense for that. Um, I feel bad on the flip side for the guy who passed away who designed these guitars because Dean basically stole his design and never compensated him for it. So there's there's the two sides of that, you know, and the guy went after Dean guitars oh, 17 years later or something like that or 20 years later and and they the the courts told him you, you could have filed this lawsuit years ago and they dismissed it, they appealed it, they dismissed it again. Um the guy was just uh, apparently everybody loved him in the industry. He was just there to play, uh, to make guitars for uh, musicians, and he he done some really amazing guitars. He did the Dean from Hell. He's also did Vivian Campbell's guitar, which is pretty popular. So it's a it's a sad story on both counts. So yeah, it's it's unfortunate when it's like this, but. It's the truth. Like, you really have to jump on these things way ahead. You can't come back years later saying, you know, they profited off of my my design and, and now I want compensation. Unfortunately, it's just that's the reality of it. And most people don't have good legal counsel to make those decisions where these big companies definitely do. So it's unfortunate, but it's kind of the reality of life is that, you know, we have these these corporations that are pretty much always going to win. Um, yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd like to know more about the situation to really be able to judge if, if Dean is, is, um, you know, breaching contract or whatever, but I think you're right in the end, it's probably not going to go anywhere. Um, I mean, I imagine, uh, that Dimebag's legacy is going to move over to another company or something. I. It just doesn't make sense know. to me because yeah. I mean, basically, it's a Dean. It's Dean from Hell. That's the the uh, guitar that that made Dimebag famous. And yes, he mm-hmm. moved over to Washburn Guitars, and they made a similar shaped guitar and a similar headstock and all that. But it's not the same. It's not the same, and <clears throat> you know, alleging fraud. And, and breach of written agreement. I, I get all that, you know, to, to, for someone to feel that way. But essentially, you know, they have, uh, they have the right to sell these guitars. They're, those are Dean guitars. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, are they compensating the estate the way they should be? And I think that's the biggest, the biggest thing here. 
where there may be the, the, the level of compensation. Although none of that is kind of mentioned and we don't know all the details. Yeah, it just exactly. it, it just seems to me that's kind of where Reed is probably coming from. So, um, you know, it just sucks, obviously, that that Dimebag's not around and that this this is, you know, people talking about his legacy and affecting his legacy in some degree where all it is is hurting fans that just want to, you know, remember the guy and and maybe pick up a guitar that he played and that inspired them to become guitarists. Like, that's the big thing about these corporations that they're, they're so lifeless. They don't care because all, at the end of the day, we're all people and we just want to, like, live our lives and remember people that are gone and and be inspired and be great on our own and it's just they're all they do is just take and and destroy essentially right now on the flip side you know buddy blaze webster passing away i mean from all accounts this guy was beloved in the industry um jack russell the other day uh, on his twitter account put something uh a very heartfelt tribute to to buddy um you know if saying that he lost a friend and, and, and had a nice little paragraph. And it's just, it's, it's one, he's, this guy, buddy was one of these guys that he didn't do it for the fame or the notoriety. He did it for the friendships that he created with these artists. And that's the cool thing about it. I mean, the guy had, you know, yeah, he wanted compensation, but if you think about it, him going back all those years later, in in reality, the compensation was never a part of this. You know, yeah. he went after Dean Guitars. He didn't go after the artist. Hey, how come you didn't pay me for that? It had it, He went after the guitar manufacturer. So, yeah. I mean, he to be friends with Dimebag, to be friends with Vivian Campbell, uh, and the guitar name that he did for Vivian was the Night Swan, um, to be friends with, you know, Steve Vai, Tom Schultz, Slash, Mark Kendall, you know, Geezer Butler, Trent Reznor, and even Chris Isaac and Stevie Nicks. Just, just to know that he had involvement in the 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 um, instruments that they played. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, he had a well, the really man was cool obviously life. Obviously, a skilled artist. Yeah, you know, he 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 had uh, an ability that a lot of people don't have, and then these companies will take advantage of that, and that's just reality. Yeah. So now he is. He's up there with all the guys that have passed away, and he's making instruments for them now up in heaven. So that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, rest in peace, buddy. Um, it, you, know, you were a really cherished friend for many of these artists. That was really cool. All right, so last but not least, and this is the one that kind of hits me the most, and I've, I, you almost kind of have an understanding as to why. Uh, Dave Mustaine explains why he was so jealous of Metallica's success. Now, there have been several Dave Mustaine articles that have come out because he sat down with Gibson TV for one of their Icons episodes, uh, which Kurt Kamet did recently as well. And he basically laid it all out there for the hundredth time. Because, of course, everyone's always going to talk to Dave Mustaine about his time in Metallica, as short as it was, as long ago as it was. And he basically, you know, in one of them explained that he was, you know, what he felt like when he was fired. Um, and so this particular article explains why he was so jealous. And it's just understandable. I mean, the story's been told a million times. Everyone knows. And his 
his answers to why he was so jealous was because he was no longer part of the band. I mean, it's just obvious. They were they went on to have success fairly immediately. I mean, even on that low level, there you could see the the gain, in, you know, the rise in popularity. And he saw that from afar, all the way in California. He heard the rumbles all the way across the country of how Metallica was doing. So, of course, he was jealous. And, of course, he wanted to do something that was just bigger, better, and, and, and even more metal than Metallica. And some say he may have achieved it. What do you think? I mean, I, th- I think w- based on the article, I mean, it goes into more depth than that. It's like these people were his friends. These people were who he was around every day. And all of a sudden he was gone. He was exiled from it. And I and I get that. Like you, you, when you're pushed away, it's hard because it's like, yeah, maybe their egos. This was always the the destiny of of these guys. They were never going to be able to last very long. But he was a part of it, and then all of a sudden wasn't a part of it, and didn't have like the the infrastructure there, and had to start from scratch. And so, like, there's that anxiety of like, how am I going to do this? Am I? Like, he even talks about at one point, like he thought about quitting guitar, you know, because it it is somewhat traumatic to go through that, to be on the cusp of something great, and then all of a sudden not be part of it. So I totally get where he came from, like, you know, feeling that that anxiety and um, that need to to prove himself. Yeah, absolutely. That I I don't you, you can't blame him for the jealousy factor at all, because you know, yeah, you were in this band that you really really enjoyed, and they kicked you out. It doesn't matter when it happened. It doesn't matter that they were nobodies. At the time, it doesn't matter that, you know, any of it. It, it, what matters is you had four guys who had become fast friends and they traveled across the country and they wanted to put together a record and all of a sudden it's like, boom, you're out of the band. And yeah, and then you get this long, lonely ride home on a bus and you've got a ton of thinking to do. It's natural for anybody to think like that. And so Mm. the only... The only issue I have with that is that, yeah, he thought like that, and he harbored this resentment for so many years, so mm. many years. Uh, and even though, on the surface, in the media, there was this harboring of resentment, but quite honestly, from what I read, you know, they played a show together, not necessarily together, but Megadeth was on the bill. In 1984, I think it was at the New Year's Eve show in San Francisco, something like that. I can't remember what year it was, but they were on the same bill. And Megadeth was was opening, you know, it was one of the four bands that were on the bill. And Metallica was the, was the headliners. So, you know, there is that jealousy there. But at the same time, there was still, uh, I guess, a professional friendship that, that took place in the background that nobody knows about. I think a lot of it is the media and, and fans reminding constantly like, oh, yeah, you, you used to be part. Like, how many times does Dave need to be asked about Metallica? You know, exactly. There, that's that. I think that's where it boils down to is a lot of it is still that it's, you know, it's being brought up and it's always 
always going to be there when he's done his own thing and he has his own fans and he has his own success. Yeah, but, it's always there's always that Metallica factor, and it's just kind of sad because Megadeth is a completely different type of metal band than Metallica. Even, they really are now at this point. Yeah, and even even though I've I've often criticized Dave for constantly trying to follow in Metallica's steps and trying to be somewhat similar and always being one step behind his diversion of of the music that he plays is, is completely different than Metallica even though they were he was trying to be as accepted as Metallica and he was accepted in a different way he just never became as big as them because he wasn't as commercially accessible as they were or but I think are, at this me. point he's doing his own thing and it's working yeah and, and I'm, I'm happy to see that and I think in all in all in our old age, as as we get older, that becomes something that we can accept more about ourselves, which is great. Right. So, let's move on now to Rusty Metal. All right. And my Rusty Metal pick for this week is TNT with their Tell No Tales album from 1987. Uh, it was released on Polygram Records. It's produced by... Bjorn Nessio, I think is how you pronounce his name. And it was recorded at Norsk Sound Studios in Trondheim, Norway, and Sound Ideas in New York City, New York. All right, so this is the, the Norwegian band's third and best-selling album in the U.S. Um, it was the second album to feature singer Tony Harnell. And yes, that's the same Tony Harnell that was in Skid Row several years ago and had a very short-lived stay with Skid Row. Um, the album contains the, the hits As Far As The Eye Can See, Everyone's A Star, and 10,000 Lovers In One. Uh, Everyone's A Star and 10,000 Lovers In One were videos that I saw on MTV, and that was my first exposure to TNT. And if if anyone has heard that song, Everyone's A Star, um, especially for 1987, that was basically the, the, the pinnacle and the perfect kind of song for the type of glam metal that was out at the time. I mean, the guy was just searing high vocals, hitting notes that, you know, Mariah Carey is is familiar with. Um, it was amazing. I mean, some, some of these songs were, were awesome. Um, and this is why this is their biggest selling album in the U.S. And their next album after that, Intuition, did really, really well across the globe. But it was, again, another movement forward um, f- away from the glam metal, so it's kind of weird. They started as a power metal band, went to glam metal, then it came became more hard, uh, a little heavier, a little harder on Intuition, even though it's probably still had ties into the glam metal scene. Um, but this album, Tell No Tales, um, it contained also three instrumentals, which were more like uh, song intros, I guess you could say, as well as two power ballads. Which you know, by this time in, in the '80s, it was a necessary evil if you were you know trying to break into the U.S. market, you know, especially for a, a band from overseas in Europe. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's the, those three songs that I mentioned at the beginning, as far as the eyes can see, and everyone's a star and Ten Thousand Lovers. Those were big hits for them. The rest of the album's kind of like, eh, if you like '80s metal, you know, you're gonna like those songs. Um, but there was nothing really to write home about. The, the power ballads were not that great. Um, so they didn't really have that crossover appeal. But the, but the song 10,000 Lovers in One was a really good mid-tempo, you know, slow to mid-tempo uh, rock song that really showcased the band and their abilities. 
So if you love 80s metal, <clears throat> excuse me. So if you love 80s metal, this is an album that you need to add to your collection. Uh, it's got all the typical cliches that happened in the 80s, and it doesn't apologize for it. So pick it up. You can still catch it on all streaming platforms, and the CD is still available out there. Uh, and if you want to spend over $100, you could probably pick up the vinyl as well. So give it a <laughs> listen to. It's pretty cool. Um, I'm not really familiar with the band, so it's one of those that I'll have to check out, and I definitely will do that. All right, what's your Freshly Forged pick of the week this week? All right, so I went kind of easy because I was, one, really impressed by this track, but also, um, I, I, you know, they're one of our favorite bands, and I, I feel like gushing over them sometimes. And uh, I picked Iron Maiden Stratego. Um, it is the new track from the new album, Sinjutsu, and this is really good. I was... I was really digging the first track, but this one I liked even more. It reminded me a lot of what they did when on their their comeback album, Brave New World. Um, there's there was this um, there's a guitar sound that kind of harkened back to that early two thousands um, sound that they had back then on their first two albums with Dance of Death as well, and I really enjoyed it. To me, it sounded like a lot of the stuff they were doing on Matter of Life and Death, but it sounded like the production was just so much better, and it it kind of makes me think, oh, man, I wish I could hear that album with good production. <laughs> um, so I was, I was really impressed. It's a really good start to these releases from the album. I know that when a band releases uh, uh, singles – that typically means that those are the songs that they view as the best, but I hope it's a really good sign of we're getting a lot of good new material. And I, and I know that the band is really excited about it and, and more so than I would say of anything that they've released in the last 10 years, the way they're talking about this is, and I say last 10 years, maybe 20 years would be a better way to say it because We've only had Final Frontier and A Book of Souls since then, <laughs> but but, uh, but I would say there's there's an excitement behind what they're saying and the way they're talking about this album that leads me to believe that this is going to be great. They, they're talking about having a lot of diversity in tracks, the input from the different players. Like it just this to me is already off on a really good start. What do you think? I, I heard the song and I thought it was really, really good. Um, I was like, you know, just listening to Nico's drumming. I'm like, it reminded me of stuff. Uh, yeah. Like matter of life and death, uh, dance of death era, um, style of, of playing. Yeah, his drumming's really good on the track. I, I, I was impressed. I mean, not saying the stuff he's done otherwise was not good, but, um, there was there was an enthusiasm there that I could hear. Yes, exactly. And and the only thing I the only criticism I can have of it, and I don't I don't necessarily uh, view this anymore as a criticism because this is the way Iron Maiden has done things since uh, Dance of Death, basically, um, is that it this song sounded a lot more muffled sounding compared to Writing on the Wall. This one this one typically this sounded much better than the stuff that's on Book of Souls, um, probably more in line with the stuff from Matter of Life and Death in terms of sound. Um, you know, matter there was, I get what you're saying, but, but if you listen to the rhythm section versus 
the the guitar sound. The guitar has a muffled sound to it. Like like that's what I was kind of mentioning back to the the early first albums in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the, there is like some separation between the rhythm section and that kind of muffled guitar sound. It sounds like it was done on purpose, and it was more like the problem that I have, like the biggest problem that I have with Matter of Life and Death. I've mentioned that I love the album. But the problem I have is that it sounds so muddy and everything sounds like it was just thrown into one pool and then, you know, mixed out from there. Like it doesn't sound separated. But this, if you listen to it a few times, you start to recognize, oh, wow, there is there are multiple layers to this that I didn't notice before, which I think it it being only what, two or three days old, um, there hasn't been that real time to listen to it, but uh, I listened to it a few times in the car, which to me is always like the best experience because it's just like all the sounds right in there. Um, and I was I was really blown away. I thought I thought it didn't quite sound as muddy as as some of the stuff before, but there was almost a a, a, um, uh, a deliberate muffled sound to the guitar. I, I see what you're saying, and, and I got to give it another listen to. Uh, every time I try to listen to it recently, I got I kept getting cut off with a phone call. So yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, it, it's not a criticism so much as I'm used kind of used to it. And what you're what you're trying to say is that it's kind of sounds a little the, the muffling is a little different than it was in the past, and that yeah. that may be the case. So I'll definitely give it another listen, but. In in general, the song is really really cool. I like the song a lot, so I'm I'm really really excited for this album. Um, by the time that this episode posts, we'll be one week away from that album coming out, and I'm really really excited that that uh, that that album is coming out because it's just something new to listen to from one of my favorite bands, and I'm just gonna be on my phone and I'll get to listen to it. You know, when I'm taking my plane flight to Phoenix later this year, and so I'm. I'm super excited about the whole album so i'm i'm and i'm super excited to get to see them again in 2023 <laughs> cuz you know that's the time when they're going to come back to the US they're not going to yeah. be here next year so um anyway i i like the song i like it a lot uh that's your freshly forged pick of the week for this week so that's awesome so let's get to the main topic for today and it's children of bottom and the uh, melodic death metal band from finland all right, so we're going to be going over um, Hate Breeder versus Follow the Reaper. Um, Hate Breeder was released in 1999. It was produced by Ansi Kipo, recorded at Ostia Studios in La Prinaranta, Finland. And I know I probably butchered that. And, <laughs> and it was released That's on... about sp- as well as I could do. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so it was released on Spine Farm Records. Um all right, so before we get into the songs, let me begin by saying that the musicianship on all these albums are amazing. It's just it's just amazing. Um, Alexi Lyo was an amazing talent that left us way too soon. Um, I've got to I've got to listen to him recently, and I even I, when the bottom after midnight stuff came out, we listened to those songs. Those songs were amazing. Um, the rest of the band. They're no slouches either. I mean, they are extremely talented, or probably just as talented as he is or was. Uh, and, you know, they they only enhanced what Alexi brought 
forward in those songs. So my my listening to these two albums, you know, really in-depthly for the first time, it, it was just, I was blown away by the, the musicianship by these guys. I mean, between the guitars, the bass, the drumming, and the keyboard playing, all those things, it's just mind-boggling how good all of them are. And, um, and how well they interacted with each other. Yes. I you mean, know, it, it, it was just amazing to listen to. And then, so that being said, this was my first, like I said, this is my first dive into Children of Bottom. And I had seen them in concert before um, when they opened up for Megadeth when they were here in Houston back in 2016. But I ne- And I had heard the rumble because watching you know that metal show, um, what was his Don Jameson was a big fan of, of Children of Bottom. He kept pushing them every time he could. Between them and Amon Amarth, he's always talking about them. And so the one thing I took notice right away about all these songs, or most of these songs, I mean, I say all of them, is, and I mentioned this to you before, the song structure is so different from your typical, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, chorus, you know, out, and outro. It's, it's hard to sometimes get a grasp of it as a person who's not used to that. So I had to kind of like shut that down inside me to, to realize that these songs are just laid out differently. These songs are played differently. And, and that's when, when you get that appreciation, then you can understand the whole. So that, that's, that's my, you know, before we start type of intro to this stuff from my perspective, Let's go ahead and get into the albums. You're going to lead all the songs uh, for the next two albums, so let's go. All right. So, like you said, we're starting off with Hate Breeder. It's uh, Children of Bottom's second album in 1999, and it starts off with an audio clip uh, from the movie Amadeus from 1984. Uh, it's from now on, we are enemies, you and I, and it's it's a moment that uh, Salieri. Um, He's saying this in in the the scene to a crucifix on the wall, and he's talking about how um, he feels that that in es- essentially God has sided with his enemy, which is Amadeus Mozart, um, and that left him kind of by the wayside. And it's it's an interesting start because it gives this this um, it like it sets the stage for the type of music that you're going to be hearing, the vocal, I mean, the lyrical content of what you're going to hear. It also has a tie-in to the aspect that this is a neoclassical album. So it's it's kind of a cool intro that, that leads in, and it was a, it was a trend um, of Bodum in their early years using clips from uh, movies. That in the first album, they used clips from the, the uh, uh, TV movie It!, from years ago for the Stephen King film. And then this one they used Amadeus. And then in the next one, we'll talk about that one when we get there. But um, this was a trend with the band where they would tie something in that fit the mood of what they were going to be playing. Um, from that point on, just for, for like right from the start, you get a song that just rips um, Warheart. Um, you know, it's lyrically about... Um, you know, somebody that has, has given up on the, the niceties of life and is, is only feeling hatred and pain. 
that's kind of contrasted with this this really nice harmony and what i like about it is that there's this there's a uh, kind of a creeping bass through all the the album i mean throughout throughout the, all of this track and it really is understated and it it's it's something that i never really noticed all that much as i was first getting into the band that uh that henka sabala is a really great bass player but it's so understated and what he does is so mixed in with everything else that you don't you don't see it as a feature until you really listen to all the depth of the song and you notice that it's just this creeping sound that's all the way along until it finally builds up and there's these really great bass transitions and it shows that even the smallest part of this music is so important and um you really get the idea of like this is neoclassical from this track uh and that's kind of where they still were in their career. I, I get that. <laughs> uh, I, me being new to it, and and not necessarily completely understanding of the the style of music, um, I didn't catch the neoclassical part about it. But um, I did catch what you were kind of talking about with the bass, as I mentioned uh, when I on my notes here. I mean, this song starts off with a ripping bass riff. And it 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 doesn't compromise anything throughout the rest of the song. Um, you know the the song then right after the the bass riff is played or continues to play though, um, it, the band jumps in with a blast beat. Um, then the, the the keyboards add the cinematic effect to 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 the song, um, and it only slows down temporarily in what I would think is is a bridge type section. It's real short. It happens a couple times throughout the song, so it's it is definitely one of these rip your face off kind of songs to start an album off with, and it's really good. I mean, I like it. Uh, I catch the chant of Warheart towards the, be- the the back end of the song, or the chorus part of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a definitely a, a great way to start an album when uh, when you're trying to put in this particular type of uh, concept. And, and and story throughout the album, so I I like the song. It's it's pretty cool, you know. It yeah, was, it's a, it's a really good opener. Yeah, it's for me. It's just like all right. Once I I because I listened to this a couple times in the car, and then I went song by song, trying to break down certain parts, and and definitely one of those songs where it's like yeah, it's a, it's an opener, and um, but it it doesn't compromise anything for the rest of the album. So. Yeah, it, it if you listen to every track in the album, everything has like a really good start and I really do feel like this is one of those albums you can listen to from beginning to end and just enjoy the whole way. Um I don't feel like I feel like there are definitely tracks that are way better than others, but at the same time I don't feel like there's any real duds. But if you have to pick one track out of this album that you feel like is the opener, this is definitely it. Like it's placed in exactly the right place it should be. All right. So the second track is Silent Night, Bottom Night. Um, lyrics are actually by Kimberly Goss, which is, I believe, one of the few tracks in the whole catalog that the lyrics are done by a different artist. Now, Kimberly Goss, um, as maybe a lot of you might know, is Alexi Lyo's first wife and technically his only wife. Um, she um, 
she and he, or the two of them had had remained married technically throughout their whole life, even though they had separated and he had uh, quote unquote gotten married to another woman before um, his passing uh, many years ago. And um, so Kimberly had he had been uh, the lead singer of a, a band called Synergy, which Alexi had been par- part of. And so they had this connection. Um, Silent Night, Bottom Night. Um, is a breakneck track um, that really is one of the first ones that I I remember making me just really fall in love with the band. I had I had had uh, something wild before that, and Dead Night Warrior was the first ba- the first track that really just made me say this is a band I want to follow. But then when I heard this track, it just blew me away. Um, it is interesting that it's so deceptively simple because it is such a breakneck pace um the the drums are just going wild here and um it does like when it slows down it leads into a solo um that really hits me like it's it's just kind of like this chilling feeling there is kind of like a horror aspect to some of their music you know like a horror film influence i guess um i mean mean, in fact they're the name of the band is 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 named after some infamous murders in in finland um but uh it's it's just it's deceptively simple but it's so fast and exciting you know it's funny because you mentioned you know how breakneck this the song is but i consider it <clears throat> I consider it to be a slightly slower than the opener, um, but uh, it's still, you know, a fast song. Um, I, what I like... It's, it's fast in a rhythm way. Yes, It's not yes. fast in a, like, moving around the guitar way. Right, right, exactly. What I guess is, I guess around the, the chorus section, there's a nice chuggy start-stop thing that, that leads into the first guitar solo section. So I, I like that. Um, mm-hmm. About two-thirds of the way through, the song switches gears and goes into a slower guitar solo section that's really melodic. And then it brings up the pace again into the chorus, the, the chuggy chorus section. So it's it's a cool song. I like it. I mean, it's definitely um, a song that, that you can get into. Um, you know, I don't know what else to say about it because... It's just one of these things that you kind of describing this kind of song is it's hard to describe until you hear it. So, yeah, it's it is very rhythm rhythmic. Um, like a lot of bottom is arpeggios because it's it's very um, neoclassical, right? But this is more of a like how fast can you strum on the guitar? How fast can can the drummer hit the hit the drums? You know it's it's more of that kind of speed versus the complexity of other songs but it's but it's a it's catchier in that way too it's more memorable as a as a tune mm-hmm. all right so the next track is hate breeder um it has kind of a cool non-traditional structure it's if you listen to the the song and really like maybe even like take the notes while you're while you're listening to the song because you kind of have to um it's made up of about four or five different riffs that really work well together but it's it's so interesting because there are very clearly defined sections of the song but they still feel harmonious and in that they belong together in some way but it it's so funny because like there's the like you can definitely tell like oh this is this part this is this part um 
I love the guitar and keyboard trade-off at the end, and then it ends in this harmony arpeggio that's really cool. Yeah, the, for for me, you know, about one third of the way into the song, Alexi changes his vocal style uh, slightly, yes, and into, into a more lower range, kind of like a a, a raspy growl. Uh, and I don't mm. want to use the word growl like like a. It's hard to say. It's not a death metal growl like. Um, uh, like six feet under or anything like that, or Cannibal Corpse, but it's just a, just the way he he sings. I mean, it's, it's but it's a, like a guttural, like yes, uh, it's in the throat almost. Right, right. So, and I like the I like that style of his singing when he sings like that. So I, I welcomed that change in the style, and as well as the pace of the song, it, it made it more memorable for me. Um, so the fact that it was it, it's got. Those different and distinctive riffs is what makes this song pretty cool for me as well. Yeah, it shows some uh, dynamics to to the 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 songwriting and the and not just necessarily the, the just the songwriting, but the musicianship. Right, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I again going through these, I enjoyed most every song that's that's on these albums. Um, so this was another one that definitely stood out for me. Very cool. Um, the next track is Bed of Razors. Um, to me, this is one of those tracks that, like, this really highlights how well Yana and, and Alexi, the, the keyboardist and the, the, the lead guitarist and singer, worked so well together playing off each other with these solos going back and forth and uh, their melodies together. Um, the guitar harmonies also are really good it this is one of those tracks that shows off uh, alexander the original uh rhythm guitarist he can keep up a, in, a, in a lot of ways with alexi and they have this this really good chemistry early on um it's a great track i i if to me it kind of plays like a sometimes almost like a drinking song like it's like like uh you know, like an Irish drinking song in a way. It's it's kind of funny. Uh huh. I, I I could kind of see that to something to some degree. Um, I like the fact that you know the the song opens with the, with a mid paced keyboard uh, sound and that mm-hmm. leads into the full band, but it maintains the melody of the song. And if the song then at this point remains at this pace throughout the whole song. Um, the first guitar solo is extremely melodic with a great harmony. Uh, the second solo section is cool in that the guitar and the keyboard play off each other, and they, they create a very memorable solo. Um, and what, what's very distinctive about this, it is a very European harmony-type song or filled type. Uh, it's a very European harmony-filled type of track. So it's, for, for this album and for this style of music, it's a very accessible uh, song to me and so i th- i think that's one of the standout tracks for for that in my opinion completely i mean this is one of the few tracks that actually Al- alexander uh Coapola has a songwriting credit on and so it does have a little bit of a different sound than some of the rest as you as he brought in a riff that was that was you know something maybe a little different than because alexi is really the band leader like he writes all the music on most of the albums and and so there is that that really heavy influence of this is his band but this there's something a little bit different here and then this also has like the gang vocals where you know they're all kind of like 
chanting one word or a, a phrase in the song this is this is one of those ones that has a, a lot of that so um it's something that becomes a trademark of the band as well so it's a pretty good track i i always like this one a lot uh, the next one is, uh, this track five, is Towards Dead End. Um, it's been noted, I, I, I've i always questioned if, it, if it's Toward Dead End or Towards Dead End because on different releases it's it ha- it leaves the S off, but that's just a little little tiny thing. Um, the, the rhythm section really kicks this one off, uh, just slamming that snare drum. Um, and it just really goes into directly into just another awesome riff. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to really define what makes this song so good. Um, it's, it is a little bit more, um, heavy in a sense because of the the way the rhythm section works in this song and then it ends with this classical ending um that's just really killer i like it a lot i I think what you you find you know uh what is what makes this song kind of stand out in and i wrote this down here where it says where i say i think it's a very singable type of harmony that's throughout the song and i think that's Mm -hmm. what makes it stand out um you know it opens with a very melodic harmony lead riff and you know so the whole harmony throughout the song is just it's got you know how you know uh with metallica master of puppets where james you know well in europe the crowd would sing the guitar solo back to the band while they're playing James tried to force that in the United States in the United States that just doesn't happen they don't get it you Mm -hmm. know but bands like Iron Maiden Metallica and 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 other bands that have those kinds of harmony solos or even harmonies in the songs the 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 audience sings it back to them and you know like like uh on um uh, the Klansman you know, there's that section where, you know, Bruce is singing a harmony that goes along with the with the the melody. The the people, the the crowd, the fans, they just sing it back at them. So in that that's Europe is very, very famous for that. This song has that throughout the whole song, and that's what makes it stand out. You know, so Yeah, the the songwriting approach is very different because it is kind of based on like when when classical composers would write music it wasn't with lyrics right they were writing a a a harmony a melody you know and and so they like this same kind of approach is like the main riff in all of these tracks is something really catchy and and in the vein of of an old classical component composer in that way and so the songwriting is not as much based around the singer as the guitarists and the keyboards. Right. Exactly. So it is a little different. Yeah. So yeah, that, that is it. That is a, a really good way of putting it. I, I didn't catch that as much as you did. So I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. And, and what I also like about this again on this track, uh, Alexia is singing in that lower growl, which to me, I, I enjoy that more than his, his typical screaming kind of, curdling vocal that he does but that's just that's what he does you know um there's a lot of different things that are going on in the song and it it all blends and works well so it's pretty cool well you saying that it's possible that you would like more of the stuff that they did later on in their career um especially maybe uh are you dead yet um where his vocals get a little bit lower so we'll, we'll get to that later 
<laughs> gotcha. Yeah. All right. So the next track is going to be Black Widow. Um, this is one of the first tracks that doesn't directly flow from the last track. So there's kind of a when Towards Dead End ends, it's just kind of like a bump bump, and it ends kind of like the old classical um, g- piano solos and stuff like that. So this one starts off with uh, kind of a harp sound that like a flute harp kind of sound that's made on the keyboard so it has kind of this dreamlike quality to it that takes you into kind of like a a darker sounding um track that is kind of like following an arpeggio of a like the up and down up and down up and down and so it it kind of fits the the lyrics very well um, where it's it's a little bit more of like a um, treacherous kind of tone to it. So it's it's a really cool like it it doesn't carry over directly per se, but it fits exactly how it should. Like it gives you that moment to breathe in between the first and the second half of the album. Yeah, um, yeah, I can I can see that. I get that. Um, what I what I liked about this song was it had that really cool chuggy riff to open the song and then uh the background vocals which was were gang you know gang style vocals also added a different touch to the song um mm-hmm. and and <clears throat> again the keyboards make it feel cinematic to some degree you know and it's not your the typical um yeah, those orchestrals. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it was it was much more cinematic than than the keyboard guy going along and playing solos. So I like the song a lot. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a little different in the vein of the album, but it's a it's a welcome kind of breather in a way. It it, it which is funny to say because I mean it's still it's still fast paced to a degree, but it has this this um, more flowing melodic quality to it. All right, so the next track, number seven, is Wrath Within. Um, this, I always thought, like, the way it starts reminds me of, like, a train kind of going wild on the tracks, like, headed towards, like, a collision. Because it's got that very um, rhythmic chugging on the guitar at the very beginning. Um, and then about the at the one-minute mark, the keyboards hint at a melody that would later reoccur. So what I like about this track is the keyboards kind of build towards something all throughout. There's these, this kind of hints at something that's coming more, you know, later. And, um, the pre-chorus is really cool because it builds in this like kind of haunting way. So there's a lot of growth in this song. Like that's what, that's kind of what I like is that it's, it's all building towards something. And then, it has these like more understated, but in slower, um, more intricate solos, which are kind of broken into two parts where there's a more like accessible traditional style uh, portion of the solo that's then broken. Then there there's like a, a, a bridge there and then a more classical solo um, more in the vein of a lot of the stuff that's happened earlier in the album. So it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of um, dynamic aspect to this song. 
getting to this point in the album, I, I guess I was having burnout with with just the uh, the breakneck pace of this entire album, and mm. and when I got here, I liked the riff. Uh, the intro riff is really cool. Um, there are some cool riffs throughout the song, but the one thing that I kept kind of reoccurring for me was this felt like it was a filler. Uh, in hmm. my opinion, I mean, you you have a different opinion of, of Bodom altogether. Um, so I'm just, you know, it's almost like an outsider perspective. Um, but since Alexi doesn't really write anything that doesn't have a cool harmony, <laughs> overall, it's, a, it's, it's still a, a, a good song. But for me, after listening to the whole album, it almost felt like it was kind of stock. You know, it was, it was almost like we need to get a song in here and this is what we came up with. So that's what that's the way it felt to me, um, but there's there's some differences in the next couple songs that that definitely changes. But um, this one particular song just doesn't stand out for me. Okay, uh, track eight is "Children of Bottom." It is, um, I guess, the prerequisite name a song after the subject that uh, you named your band after. Um, this is one's a little bit more straightforward in melody. Um, it but it kicks into like a full neoclassical section at the midpoint. Uh, so it kind of changes its dynamics. Um, what I kind of like about this track is that it is a bit more reminiscent of what they did on their first album, which was definitely the height of their, you know, neoclassical influence. So it does in some degree feel like a little bit of a holdover from their first album. Um, I know we're not really talking about that one per se, uh, but it, it it definitely feels more like something wild than it does for this album. Well, it, it's funny you say that because it's this the name of the band. The song is, is it's it's the self titled name of the band. So mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like that the song was probably a leftover from that that just never quite got completed. Um, because, be. because you say it that way, because if, if it sounds like something off of that time period and it's the name of the band, it's, it would be weird to, to have a song after the name of the band, three out, three songs into, to their career, or excuse me, three albums into their career. Two, two albums. This was, oh, this is the second, that's right. The second yeah. album. So yeah. So to me, it, it, it almost seems like it's definitely got something left over in that regards. Um, for me, I, I love the intro riff. This is a really cool it is really good. Riff. I mean, I like how it stops and then it bends and it goes into this like harmony solo to lead into the first verse. Um, the bend, it just bends enough where it just doesn't get out of tune that much, but you can tell it it was a serious bend on the notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the breakdown part that starts at about 147. It's a nice way to break up the song before heading into the solo. Uh, and then, you know, the, the bell that stops the song is a nice touch to kind of restart the song uh, a little bit yes. later in. So that's, that's a pretty cool touch to it. This, so unlike, you know, where I was criticizing Wrath Within for being stock, this is definitely not that kind of song. And so it's, it's nice to see that they picked up and put something in that is definitely unique. So I like that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good track. And, um, if you enjoyed this one, then definitely check out Something Wild because there is a lot of similarities between this track and what they did with that first album, which is a very short album. Uh, it's It almost feels like more of an EP. Um, there's only seven tracks, but it is around the same length as this one. So 35 minutes versus 38 minutes. But okay. um, 
the last and final track of the the album is uh, Downfall. And Downfall is a really, really good track. Um, the keyboard intro definitely feels like this is the end. Um, this is this is the the set closer. This is the ending. Um, the main riff is just pulse pumping and exciting, and then it slows things down briefly, only to kick them into higher gear each time. Um, once the lead guitar layer is added to that main riff, it even adds an, uh, just another dimension of what this song is. Um, and it has another like really good showcase of, of the bass playing. So some of the songs, the bass is much more integrated, where this is another one where it's kind of it's uh, creeping along underneath, but you can really hear it. And then there's the really good bass interlude in between. So... Um, to me, this is one of the strongest tracks on the album. So it's funny that you say that this song makes you feel like you're at the end of the album. Um, I put down on, on my notes, so it's got a nice main riff, right? And this song kind of has the feel of we've reached the end and we're mm-hmm. just going to go for it at this point and put everything into the bowl and mix it all together and see what we get. And mm-hmm. that works for this song. Uh, it doesn't feel like filler, um, but it definitely feels like good night. We'll see you next year. You know, <laughs> yeah. <So>. yes, it <laughs> feels like the end of a, a concert. Exactly. Like, this exactly. is this is like let's go all out. They, yeah, they put everything into it, and it's just like you know, the whole band just went nuts, and it all works. It's a good song, but it, it definitely has that feel to it. It's, so it's pretty funny that 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 uh, you said that because I'm laughing while you're talking. It's going, oh yeah. So I, I'm I'm on the right track here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so that kind of wraps things up for hate breeder. Uh, I mean, I feel like one of the biggest strengths is that, um, they know where their lane is there, the interactions between the band, whether it be the guitar harmonies or the guitar, um, keyboard harmonies, the, the trade-offs, the, the, the solos in general, like they know what they're doing. It does feel like a little bit of a transition out of the initial, like purely neoclassical era of the band, like with their their first album, um, whereas they are integrating more accessible aspects of music and um, some some really recognizable um, so uh, guitar riffs. Um, what did you think? Um, overall, the I mean the album was cool. I liked it. I mean, except for that one song. I mean, every song kind of had its own story to tell. Um, mm-hmm. I like the interplay with the keyboards. Um, that's, you know, obviously that's a distinct, it's, it's a, a more distinct thing that happens in Europe than it does in the United States yeah. where the keyboard players is, is a very integral part of the musicianship of the band as opposed to just being a, a guy playing pads in the background that makes it enhance the song. Um, so yeah, overall the album's pretty good. I have some more, kind of opinions to say about this when we're complete the two albums okay. together so um we'll talk about that when we get to that so we're going to go into follow the reaper now um, which was the album that was released in 2000 it was produced by i want to say his name was peter totgren uh and that's as good as i can say right and and children of bottom uh it was recorded at the abyss in parbley sweden and it was again released on spine farm records um so 
This is their third studio album. And uh, once again, Chris, take it away and let's go over these songs. Okay. So the, the album starts off with the title track, Follow the Reaper. Uh, similarly to how Warheart starts, it has a clip from the movie or from a movie to start things off. Uh, I kind of mentioned that before that had been a trend with the band. Um, this time they've taken clips from the movie Exorcist 3. Um, it's it's not as well known. Um, obviously, The Exorcist is one of the uh, they would consider like the scariest uh, uh, horror movies of all time. Um, Exorcist 3 was one of those movies that kind of took things into a different direction and um, more um, uh, dealing with the, I guess, the religious aspect of things. So it kind of fits right in line with what they've been doing, um, where it actually features Father Karras from the first movie, who's the one who, who the younger priest who comes in to try to uh, uh, exorcise the demon from the young girl um he has reappeared and he's not only possessed by the same demon but the but a serial killer that has infiltrated so there's this dimension of of um somebody being guided by evil that is beyond their control so there that is a theme that kind of recurs through the album um they take that uh, our various clips and at the end of this track there's another clip and then uh one of the later tracks there's another clip so at around the midpoint um so that is something that that is interesting that there's so much thought put into um what these clips are you know what they're coming from how it relates to the lyrics and that's something that i really enjoyed in this era of the band was some you know there's kind of these deep cuts as a horror fan um knowing where these came from or researching it and that funnily enough um taking it from a film like amadeus in the last one where that's not a horror film but the subject matter is definitely relative to what he's singing about so kind of interesting um now actually getting into the track um it starts off things and you can hear that the vocals have kind of evolved to a degree they're a lot more like guttural and and ravenous kind of sounding and even more so in some of the single versions of the tracks which is interesting um but uh there's more of what I would call like the, the or what they call the the gang vocals, um, almost like that beer tavern kind of chanting um, that the whole band harmonizes, albeit with growls. And uh, the t- guitar and keyboard harmony and solo is just so on point here. Like this is a really good track to kick things off. And there's a recurring guitar harmony that kind of goes throughout this, which again shows how how skilled not only Alexi is, but Alexander as his rhythm guitarist. They do really well together here. Um, the, for me, the one thing that's very noticeable as soon as you uh, get past the, um, the, the movie clip is that the guitar sound is thicker. The production to me sounds a lot better than 
the hate breeder. Um, so that, that was very noticeable to me. And also noticeable was that Lexi's vocals were different. They have a slightly different tone to them, but that also is part of the production of it. So, you know, just the fact that there's a whole thicker, kind of deeper tone to it is reflective on the guitars and is reflective on his vocals. Um, so that's, that's for me, being a guy who definitely pays attention to production is, is noticeable as well as better for me. Uh, the song itself has got some really cool riffs. I like the interplay with the, key, the keyboards during the solo. Um, I, I like uh, the the song overall, but I think based on some of the songs that are on the album, this there could have probably been a better opener on the, okay. on the on the album than this song. But this song is still good. I just I think they could have probably been a better open. We've talked about that, like you know, we were talking about Bark at the Moon recently, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, Ultimate Sin with Ozzy. Those songs, you know, the European version was different than the American version for Bark at the Moon, and it was different openers or different second songs. You know, okay. the Ultimate yeah. Sin was just a, a completely different type of song that that did not follow the typical Ozzy type of first song so yeah so so i don't know so there was some other songs in this album that i felt were like yeah that probably could have been at number one and made it different but anyway still a good song all right so the second track is bottom after midnight and in this era of the band i kind of tend to think this is one of the more accessible songs um i i actually had friends when i back when i listened to this uh in high school um, middle school when I picked this up uh, uh, that this was the track that they could kind of get into more than some of the other stuff uh, it has a very catchy riff the keyboards are ever present here but more in the background than they are in uh, some of the other tracks uh, but the orchestrals where he, he hits those um, hard notes with the keyboard they are more prominent in this track so there is less of a like interplay but um but the, the orchestrals are present and the keyboard is kind of in the background, um, again, making this a little bit more accessible. At, at about 48 seconds into this song, there's a riff pattern that reminded me of White Snake's Slip of the Tongue. It's like, something, something okay. to that effect, right? I can right? see that, yeah. And they repeat it a few times throughout the song. And, and as soon as I heard it, I'm like, that's that's White Snake, and it's not a complete ripoff at all. But it's no, hell, no, it, it it's would a, be more influenced, right? Exactly. Than, it's yeah. a hell. It's a lot faster. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and it's. It, I don't even think it's the same notes, but there's a, a, a similarity in pattern. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I caught that, and then I like the riffing between the guitars and the keyboards on the song, and I, I like the fact that there's actually different keyboard sounds used during different parts. So that was pretty cool. And of course, the harmonies on the song are out of control, like always. So that, that's a pretty cool song. I like this. Yeah, for sure. And and like you noting that that there is the similarity to White Snake, um, that I do like that as well because it does show that there's not just like one or two influences of this band. Um, Alexi had noted throughout his career that he had a lot of influences and not just in the metal uh, field, which is, I I always like that. It shows that the band has a lot more layers to them than, than 
you know, just being a one trick pony. Well, wasn't he heavily influenced by like Britney Spears and stuff like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, if you, they did do a cover of Britney Spears, which is hilarious. And, um, their whole cover album, which is very interesting. I mean, they even did, um, Creedence Clearwater. So, uh, their, their, their covers were always very interesting. Yes. Um, the the one that came with this album with the US release was Hellion from Wasp and I love that version of Hellion. Like I would love to talk about it. I mean, I I guess I mean we could to some degree if we wanted to. Um I don't know if you listened to it um when when you were Yeah, I've heard this. I I've heard it before and I and I heard it again this time. Yeah, it's no it's a, it's a killer version. Um It's a really good cover. Yeah. I, I actually think we what we're going to do at some point is maybe is start we've already had covers episodes, but we're mm-hmm. probably going to you know, since there's full-blown albums by one band, we're, we're going to probably start pitting some of those head-to-head with each other too. So that should be a, a pretty cool concept if we can get to it. Okay. That that would be great. All right. So, continuing on, the next track is Children of Decadence. The drum beat is really what kills it here. Um, I I love the way that the rhythm section hits in this album. Like, it's fast-paced and pulls no punches, um, but really, like, mixes in, again, those really great uh, guitar keyboard trade-offs. So, going, you know, from Bottom After Midnight, which is, again, a little bit more... Um, mainstream in a way and i'm not i'm not saying it's mainstream but um it takes a different approach for sure this kind of goes back to the sound of what they were doing in the previous album in hate breeder um but again brings that bit better level of, of production I, I I picked out the same thing that you did with the drums. It's definitely got um, some unique and different drum patterns on it, and it's used throughout the song, so that's pretty cool. Um, there's a mid-tempo pace, crunching, chugging riff throughout the song that's real cool. Um, for me, it's interesting how Alexi likes to use the keyboards while he sings, and he blends the vocals along with the keyboard harmony, kind of singing on top of that, and that's that's a very unique thing as well. Um, and so, yeah, so I like that. Um, I like this song. I like that touch that he added to this song because of course, you know, it it cannot be stated enough how much harmony and melody are on all these songs. And Mm -hmm. and so, you know, if you're going to hear me repeat it over and over again, harmonies and melodies, and you've said it yourself and it's just constant harmonies and melodies and, and the, the neoclassical stuff and it just just the, that was his songwriting style and it's really cool and I know he kind of went away from it later on but mm-hmm. just in these in these two albums as we picked them it's pretty interesting that the these are the two that have that most prevalent in them so uh, it's pretty yeah I mean pretty interesting they would re- return to the, that style from time to time and never really went away per se from their songwriting um however there was more of a a um mainstream aspect especially like the next album that would come out hate crew death roll uh was a a lot simplified from what this album was and and beyond but it's something that would always return because it's it's just part of who he was as a songwriter um but yeah definitely this this album is one of those that that really takes that like that neoclassical aspect to 
it's pinnacle i think um uh the next track number four is every time i die this is a slower plotting track uh, but has the same level of intricacy as the others. I think that's what's really so impressive about it is that they're not playing at blazing speeds, but there is a lot of complexity to what they're they're playing. Um, it shows that they don't always have to play fast and can be just as effective and skillful at a slower pace. And Alexi's solo is just killer. Um, the... It, it's just so different in pacing and intent, and it shows a different side to what the band can do. I really like this track. Finally, a slow song. <laughs> nah, just kidding. It's not really that slow, but it's slower. By, I mean, it's pretty slow in comparison. By, by bottom standards, it's a slow song. Uh, it's, a, it's a chugging song. Um, I also like the way Alexi uses his lower register in the vocals on this song. So mm-hmm. it definitely works well. Um, and I really also like the mid-tone harmonies. Those are very cool as well. So it, this is a, this is definitely an, a, a different kind of song for them, and they definitely uh, worked on it. And so it, it works well. And so it's a, it's an accessible song for that for that part. Um, so yeah, I would I would say it's more accessible, but it doesn't at the same time it doesn't a stray away from the other content on the album. Like it doesn't feel like it, it's out of place. Right. But it, it, but if, if bottom were to have a ballad of some type, <laughs> you know, like this would be closer to the ballad, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's slower and more methodical. Exactly. Cool. Yes. Um, the next track is mask of sanity. Um, it's, the track's a little less broken up by multiple melodies. I would say this more focuses on one melody, which is kind of a different approach again. Um, it it But it builds on that one um, melody as the track goes along. Um, so it's got an interesting formula of, of going like fast and slow back and forth. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have like the, a lot of the tracks in the previous album would be made up of four or five different riffs. This is more focusing on really two riffs kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Um, it, the riff changes between the verses and the chorus. It, it's uh, exactly, it goes back and forth. Uh, I like the keyboard driven harmony on the intro. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a little bit different song structure on this. So even though it's still, you know, bottom style, it is, it is got a slightly different song structure. Um, of course, you know, the continuation of the, the, the harmony solos is just outstanding. So it's, it's definitely a break in from the traditional song structure that Alexi has. So, uh, it works though. It, it definitely works on this and a little bit more keyboard heavy. I gotcha, man. Um, the next track is Taste of My Scythe. Um, this brings in another clip from The Exorcist to start things off. It's a bit more aggressive sounding. It's a clip where he's saying, I'll rip and cut and tear away the innocent. And uh, it's it's one of those. So Father Karras, like I, I mentioned in the movie, is possessed by not just the demon from from the first movie, the Pazuzu, um, but also um, the this serial killer that has um, returned, and uh, it shows like 
throughout the movie that he's losing control. He he because he's in an asylum. He you know the question is who's committing these murders because it's kind of a um, one of those films where you don't know exactly what's going on until things develop. Um, so it's showing like the more aggressive side and we're kind of going to get into more of those in the next four tracks. Um, so it is interesting. Like that's, that's kind of where they take it with the, the clips um, showing this is side two and it's going to be a bit more aggressive. Um, so um, interestingly, it's, it's a little bit slower track overall, but it's offset by these occasional blast beats, which create this interesting tension. So there is a, a, a bit of a contrast from what's going on in the rhythm section to the lead, um, to what's going on even with the bass. Everything is at kind of a different pace, but somehow working together because it's all in the time, same, obviously the same time structure, um, or time signature. So, um, it is a really interesting track. It's not one of those that to me, like just really stands out as, as a, um, like a main track on the album. But I think on a deeper level, it has a lot of interesting characteristics. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those that, that uh, is definitely different. Um, it's got that slower, crunchy intro, and it picks up the pace slightly right before the verse. Um, there's several riff changes, and of course, there's harmonies thrown throughout. So yeah, it, it is definitely uh, a, a unique song in in that regards. And there's a lot of things going on on this song, but it's still they all blend well, and that's that's a, a testament to Alexi's songwriting. So. I, I agree with you there. All right. So the next track is Hate Me. Um, it is one of the singles off of the album. Um, in, fa- in fact, I believe it was technically the only single off of the album. If you've listened to the single version, the vocals are actually even harsher sounding because they layered them. Uh, they actually took two versions of the the vocals done by Alexi and then layered them over each other uh, to create kind of a more... Um, like kind of a guttural sound. Um, but the version that's on the album, which is more of what we're talking about. Um, if I would say there was one anthem of Bodum, um, this would kind of be it. Like the, I love the, the chorus. Like, I don't give a fuck if you hate me. I mean, it's, it, well, I mean, what more can you say? Like, it's like, I don't, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about anything. I like this is this is me. This is my life. Like so it's a really fun song. Like I think I don't think there was ever a concert that they didn't play this track. It is one of their staples. Um what I liked about this, you know, it's got a really cool bass and keyboard intro. Mm-hmm. And this by far has got to be Bottom's most accessible song. It's very Easy. catchy, very very catchy. It's got a really cool hook to it, um, so it's not. That's something that you haven't heard me say about any of the songs on these these two albums. This is there's a hook to this song. Uh, even the vocal melody is catchy. 
Um, so this is, you know, definitely they're more accessible. I love the, lo- the little keyboard intro on it because it, it's just so distinctly, distinctively different sounding as soon as it starts. So I, I like that. That's pretty, pretty cool. So Yeah, when paired, I mean, as a single, when paired with Hellion, I mean, this was an awesome single. I remember picking it up and just being, excuse me, I remember picking it up and just being like, wow, this is different. Um, so it, I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. It's a really good track and it shows kind of the direction that the band would be going in the future. But yeah, accessible, I think is, is, um, really a good way to put it. Um, Northern comfort is the eighth track on the album. Um, it has a bit more typical elements of simpler guitar riffs mixed with like the crazy blast beats and then it does have like this neoclassical section so it's another one of those that kind of mixes the 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 styles um in many ways i see this again as another transition of what would be on subsequent albums so um these two tracks hate me and northern comfort i feel like are a bit more accessible this one definitely less so than than hate me um because it's not as catchy um but at the same time uh we we are seeing a transition of what the band would become later yeah i mean this is this has got an interesting melody to it um and i like the riff at the beginning of the song it's pretty cool and it's weird because this song has it reminds me of something from like 80s hair metal there's there's something there yeah. about this song that brings it to an 80s hair metal kind of song um definitely kind of see that not something that would have come out in the 80s <laughs> but um it definitely has you know because obviously Alexi liked the stuff that came out in the 80s so there's there's an influence there that you can hear on that on that track so uh and then it's obviously the opposite of southern comfort this is northern comfort this is Alexi's <laughs> version of comfort <laughs> all right and so we're gonna end things off with the final track on the album kissing the shadows um i just have to say like this this song does it for me every time um this is this is like what i'm waiting for for the whole album which is amazing because all these tracks i really love but building into this one it's it is my favorite track on the album uh, the main riff is one of my favorites of all time, but the last minute of the song is a guitar keyboard solo trade-off that is just a clinic. They go back and forth, and it just builds up and builds up and gets better and better with each passing minute or each passing second of the minute, I should say. Um, but it is amazing, and I'm so glad I got to see this track live the first time that I saw them, um, they didn't always play it on their shows, but it is one that that I absolutely love. I love the riff that starts off in this song, uh, as well as the interplay with the keyboards. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. that's a cool part of the song. The I riff think, is so good. Yeah, I think this is the first song in the album where the keyboards, to me, sound like they did on the previous album. Uh, and that sound is a very harpsichord kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, and that, that's what I've noticed that European musicians and European metal bands use the keyboards more in the in the vein of harpsichord, like King Diamond and Merciful Fate have used it that way. And they and he and 
King still uses it to this day like that. Um, but and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, okay. it, and so and it gives a different it gives a different tone to the song when when it has that harpsichord sound. But then again, you know, uh, the keyboard player in the band use you know all the different sounds that the keyboard player uses is all encompassed throughout the album but this one is the one that reminded me most of the first uh, or the the previous album um yeah i can see that right and then the break in the song to get to the solos is also really cool uh and like you had mentioned the interplay between the guitars and the keyboards soloing out towards the end of the song is is outstanding so it's a it's a pretty cool song overall yeah, it's, it's it's a really good way to end things. Again, like that, I think that's one of the things that that the band was very strong with was their closing tracks. Uh, Downfall being really good, um, and this one being amazing. Um, and I I can't I kind of misspoke there because I think both tracks are amazing. So um, really good way to end things. Um, so. As far as the strengths of this album, obviously the production is better than the previous album. It feels more full, as you mentioned before. Um, the change in the way the keyboard is used, I think, is welcome, whereas it was basically another guitar in the first or in the, the previous album in in hate breeder um this time it's more kind of integrated it's changed the orchestrals are a bit stronger in sound in general um so there are there are some definite changes between this and the first album and i think i like the vocals maybe a bit better on this album so my takeaway from listening to these two albums was that beyond the fact that alexi lyo was an amazing guitar player his songwriting was this incredible juxtaposition between extremely fast songs blended with these incredibly singable harmonies that was prevalent throughout almost every song. Um, and that's not your typical melodic death metal. But it was, it was his version of melodic death metal. And so that being said, I believe that Follow the Reaper is a, is a better album overall. Uh, I like the production better. Like the vocals better. Uh, there's a little bit more accessibility for me as a, as someone listening to it as a fan, and a little bit more melodic overall. So I I, I give it to Follow the Reaper. Um, yeah, I mean, despite the fact that Hatebreeder has some really great songs, I mean, Silent Night, Bottom Night, Hatebreeder, Bed of Razors, Towards That End. I love Warheart. I mean, I, I love the whole album. Uh, let's just be honest and downfall being such an amazing closer that it is there is something about follow the reaper that is just better um i think it's a maturity level yes i think it's i was going to say the same thing there's a level of maturity that that you could tell came through on this album mm -hmm. you know in in the band's short amount of time that they had been as a band and the fact that this is only a year later there's something about the way that this comes across the songwriting um the kind of hey you know we're we are a, a neoclassical uh style uh melodic death metal band but at the same time there are, is a way to make this more approachable and not you know just divulge completely from uh the the plan from the pattern so there there was something that was put into this that was 
um, it, something for everybody in a way, I think. Um, and, and I don't mean like everybody in the world is going to just gravitate, gravitate towards this and just enjoy, but fans of all these different genres of music, um, can find something to love in this out al- or this particular album. And, um, I just think it's overall a better album. And I honestly, I would say, um, this is bottom's best album. All righty. Well, cool. Well, that wraps up the hate reader versus, uh, follow the reaper. So that's going to bring us to our big four children of bottom songs. And I, I think I want you to go first on this one so that you can, uh, absorb everything I'm going to say about the four songs I picked. Okay. So let's go for it. All right. So for my, Fourth, uh, or for for sorry for my number four, um, I picked a track off of an album that I I really thought was kind of a, a little bit of a return to form, and um, one that I just really enjoyed because the previous couple tracks there was Re- Relentless, Reckless, Forever in 2011. Um, they had done their cover album, and they had done Blood Drunk in 2008. While I love them, I didn't have that same kind of love that I had for the first four albums. Um, I listened to them a lot, but once Halo of Blood came out, I was just blown away. Like there was there was a lot of um, black metal ish uh, elements to it. Um, there were like the keyboardist uh, Yana had actually been more involved with the songwriting. Um, there was a lot to it that um, I just really loved. And there was a track called Bottom Blue Moon, The Second Coming, um, that I just absolutely fell in love with. And it was hard for me to pick, um, you know, some of these because there's so many tracks by the band I love. Um, but this was one that just really did it for me and this the um guitar work at the very beginning i think is just amazing so uh, i had to pick that as my number four um my number three is are you dead yet off of are you dead yet um when this album first came out i really didn't like it because it was such a departure from what they had done before the keyboards had become less and less um apparent they had re- they completely dropped the orchestrals um but the album uh grew on me big time over time especially this track um i love the way it's played um the interplay between the two guitars and uh it was just something new and different for the band that kind of made them fresh again and i think that's the same thing that i kind of mentioned about Halo of Blood was th- it felt fresh again after four albums, them kind of changing things up and, and doing things in a little bit different way. And I think that was partially because um, they had gotten a new guitarist, which was Rup, uh, Rup Latvala. Um, he replaced Alexander Coppola and brought in kind of a new dimension to the band. So that's my number three. Are you dead yet? Um, number two is Silent Night, Bottom Night um, off of Hate Breeder. And again, I 
I said like earlier, it was one of these deceptively simple, simple songs, but it was one of the, the first songs that really just made me fall in love with the band. That legacy, in a way, is hard for me to get past, where I think there are technically some, some much better songs, um, but it has that lasting appeal for me and importance in in the history of the band. So um, I, I had to make it my number two because it's one that I always go back to, and that riff at the beginning I just I, I'll always remember. Um, and my number one is Kissing the Shadows off of Follow the Reaper. You probably have figured that out when I was talking about it. Um, what an amazing song. That solo at the end, I can listen to it over and over and over again. And it is just such a well-done, complex song that um, I think represents the band better than really anything. Even though there are more recognizable songs, like, say, for instance, Hate Me, um, this to me is like exactly what I love about bottom. Cool. Uh, we actually have one song that, that crosses over. Um, so that I have on my list. So my, oddly enough, um, I, I, obviously I know the last two songs, uh, well, uh, that, that they're on it cause we, we, we went over them, but I went through and I was listening to, some of the songs and I was like, all right, let me go through some of these albums real quick and flip through some of these songs. And there was a few that caught my attention right away. So, um, I listened to them and I'm like, Oh, this is a, these are pretty cool songs. So I ended up not picking a single song off of follow the reaper or a uh, hate breeder, which I originally thought was going to be the case that I was going to probably load up on four songs from these two albums because that's all I knew. Oh, wow. Um, but I ended up not picking any songs from them. So that's, uh, Something different. So let me go. And my number four is Needled 24-7. Uh, I love that song. <laughs> and, and, and and it's funny because, you know, <clears throat> what I did was I said, let me see what the last concert was that they played and what songs they played. So I was like, you know what? If these are songs that they played in concert and they played them in, I, th- I believe it was Norway, I was like, this is something that, you know, this is almost kind of like a hometown type of show. You know, it's in their general vicinity, you know, in Scandinavia, so <clears throat> they're they're catering to their fans more, and so I, I listened to some of those songs, and that was one of them. It was the the set closer before the encore, and totally can understand why that's the set closer. Uh, it just has that feel, very similar to how um, Downfall had that song had that feel to to be towards the end of the album, towards the end of a set. This kind of has that same feel to it. Um, Which is funny because it's the opening track off of uh, Hate Crew Death Roll. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but eventually, you know, songs, because they're at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, they, they have a pecking order. Right. The opening, the opening kind of song always lends itself to being some sort of ender of something. So True. because of the pace. So that was cool. Uh, number three is the same as your number three, Are You Dead Yet? Um, the riff structure on this song actually reminds me of Blackened from Metallica. Uh, if you can, if you can listen to that distinction there's a something very similar there that reminded me of blackened from metallica so I said, yeah there's there's a similarity there so that was pretty cool uh number two for me is blood drunk i like how it's slower than most of the the bottom songs out there and this riff on this song is just heavy as shit so i was like that's a cool song i like that song it uh, is. It's a. It's a good track, and I believe it was the first uh, single off of that album. 
Cool. And last but not least, another slower bottom song, Morrigan. I love the riff. It's a little bit slower than your typical Children of Bottom songs. And so I, for whatever reason, when after listening to it, it just kept ringing in my head. And there was something about the song that kept reminding me of, of um, Pinball Map from, from In Flames off the okay. Clayman album. I don't, I, there's just something about the, the vocal melody that just kind of, and it's maybe just one or two words, but it just it, it, something about it that reminded me of that. So obviously, you know, Clayman's pinball map came out way earlier. So there's, there's the history there, but it, I'm not saying it's the same song at all. It's just something that triggered something in my memory. No, I can, I can understand. I mean, it is melodic death metal from the same region. Right. Um, it's it, it's interesting because it is such a divisive track. Um, and that being that, so Halo of Blood came out and kind of was a little bit of return to form. And then I Worship Chaos came out and it's such a different album. One, because uh, they didn't have a rhythm guitarist. Um, so the tracks were actually written very differently on this album. It wasn't just like they didn't have a rhythm guitarist and Alexi filled in on rhythm. He did technically, but at the same time they weren't really written for two parts. And, and so there was a, there was a very drastic difference in, in I worship chaos than anything else that they, they put out. Um, this was because they had fired uh, Rob Latvala and um, kind of took the band in a different direction and i remember when morgan came out i was just like oh no <laughs> like <laughs> i i didn't i mean it's not like i don't like the song because i actually over time kind of grew to like the track um but it was so drastically different that you know how it how it feels when you hear that from a band where you're just like uh-oh what what direction is this going oh yeah like so, load and reload <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly right but so f- it is actually a pretty good track and it is one of the best off of the album cool uh, so those were the four songs that i picked and and they're definitely diverse in in style but there's a similarity there's three songs that are a lot slower than your typical uh mm-hmm. bottom songs so that was uh and then that's more along my slide i mean i love fast songs but those seem to be, I guess, more accessible overall for me. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. Like, you know, obviously, it would be easy to just pick stuff off of the, you know, the couple albums that we listened to. But their their career has a lot of diversity to it and an evolution of their sound. So it really shows that, you know, they they had a lot of change over time. And it's cool to hear you pick some of the ones that you did. Well, cool. Well, thank you. All right. Well, debating metalheads, that was our big four Children of Bottom songs, and that brings us to the end of today's episode. As a reminder, you can find us and all of our previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and almost every podcast platform, so don't forget to click the subscribe button. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check out our playlist from our Greatest Hits episodes. Make sure to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 